This is the Master Marketer Show, powered by Proofpoint Marketing. Each week, we explore the mindsets, skill sets, and tool sets the top B2B marketers use to drive results. Gain actionable insights, one masterful, revenue-generating success story at a time. Let's get started. Hey everybody, welcome to another episode of the Master Marketer Show. I am super excited to have Allison Netzer here with me today. And Allison is the CMO of Nimbus. They're a really cool company. We can talk about a little bit what, what you all do and how you do it, because I think there's, there's an interesting story there and it relates to what we're going to talk about, which is culture, uh, and specifically how culture impacts pipeline. Um, you know, I talk to a lot of leaders, CEOs, CMOs, et cetera. And you always hear people talking about, well, you know, culture is the most important thing or brands, the most important thing, these kind of generalities, if you will. And when you ask a follow-up question, you try to dive in, well, what does that really mean to you? What does that look like in your organization? Or what would you recommend that we do with that? If, how do we build this culture that's going to be uber important and uber, you know, uh, critical and effective for our business? You generally get like, very convoluted, non-committal answers. So I'm curious, what, what what does culture mean to you, Allison? Well, I think, I mean, culture means a lot of things and it, you know, it's different for everyone. I think for our conversation, you know, one of the main outputs of culture, because we have to, we have to talk about it in terms of output, right? If we're going to make a business case for something, it can't be about feelings. It needs to be about output. And one of the big outputs of culture is employer brand, right? And, you know, we measure employer brand a lot of different ways, but the key thing is we measure it. And because we measure it, we can connect it to pipeline and, and have some very specific data points um, to how employer brand vis-a-vis culture impacts your sales pipeline. So we'll have to talk about mindsets on the show. And if I'm hearing you correctly, really the one of the core mindsets here is actually having KPIs for culture and measuring said KPIs. Yeah, kind. Yeah, I hate KPIs. Um, (laughs) So I just, I just do, I do. Um, But I'm also a realist, right? And so I think there's a balance, right? I think you can not become a scorecard from a mindset standpoint, right? You don't have to like be the scorecard, but I think referencing some scorecards and, you know, as marketers, we have to remember our audience, right? And the language most of the time internally that our audience speaks and our internal audience is, is probably one of the most important, if not the most, is they speak in, in more business terms, something that's more common to them. So for example, you could probably get by if you're trying to sell culture employee brand to HR by quoting some retention you know, retention stats from LinkedIn. And that will probably get you far enough with the the HR person. But where you need to connect the dots in terms of pipeline is, have you, Mike, ever been in a sales cycle and had the account executive or the sales rep leave? That is awful, right? That throws the deal in question. You have to rebuild it. Have you ever experienced having to reassign accounts to the new person? That sets you back another 90 days on full productivity, 
right? More engaged employer employees are more productive. Productivity is not a bad word. That impacts your pipeline. Sales productivity impacts pipeline. So there's some mindset, there's some nomenclature there, but it's it's really about meeting your internal audience where they are. Yeah, I think I love that. And from a again, kind of come back to the mindset um, conversation. It's it's not about you're right. Not about KPIs, but I think a kind of meta here, but a culture of measurement and inputs and outputs and sort of yeah. like you said, yeah. thinking about it in a more logical way instead of a fuzzy, fluffy way that can't really be pinpointed and described. Can be pinpointed and described and also has a tough time getting funded. Just get, not to not to be crass and just get down to talking about money, but um, talking about it in in generalities can probably get you through the presentation and probably won't get eliminated, mm-hmm. but it's not going to get funded on a consistent basis and it's not going to be part of the strategy, right? So it has to be part of the strategy. It cannot just be culture can't be HR, brand can't be marketing, right? Brand and culture belong to everyone. Everyone needs to kind of be in that boat. So what is that, you know, if, if somebody is trying to build this internally for the first time or rebuild it, which is usually the case, um, what does that look like? Like, what is the, again, specifically, what does the mindset have to look like? What do, what do they have to be doing to, to be successful? Sure. Well, you know, as, as marketers, we have a bad habit of starting from scratch, right? Because it's fun. Um, But most companies, you know, the framework I use is most companies have some type of measurement in place for culture and employer brand. It could be a survey. It can be, you know, there's lots of things. So you do not need to go out and here's what you don't need to do. You don't need to go out and commission, you know, a bunch of consultants to come in. You don't have to redo your annual, you know, survey. You have stuff, right? It can be anecdotal. It can be objective, but you have stuff. You kind of know, and you can look at the glass doors and the LinkedIn. Start there, right? Because where I see these things get off the rails is it's such a heavy lift to do a rebuild. I really think of it more as an extension, right? You're probably not in existence, or much of an existence, if you have a a god-awful culture. So you're probably doing more things right than you give yourself credit for. What you actually really need to do is refine it and connect the dots, right? Because whether it's the leadership team or the employees, there's a shelf life to culture initiatives, but there's never a shelf life for business success. There's never a shelf life for moving up in an organization and career pathing. And that's really the framework. So you start where you are to understand where you can go. And then you have to be accountable beyond what the technology is telling you. So that's kind of the framework. So start where you are, understand where you can go, and then be accountable beyond the technology or beyond the data. Yeah, I really like the line of thinking around, you know, the uh, the initiative has a shelf life, but the culture itself doesn't. It keeps going whether whether you're doing something about it or not. Exactly. Right. And so that's I think that's an important piece because lots of things in our companies won't go unless 
you focus on it and, you know, turn the crank for better or for worse, culture is always cranking. So the business problem or the business opportunity is, do you jump in and do you, you know, connect it to the right strategies in your organization or do you just kind of let it ride off in, on the side? And, and that's really the mistake, right? Is, is having it in a, adjacent as opposed to part of the, the core business strategy. Yeah. And, you know, you kind of see it and hear about it where um, culture is either created purposefully or it just happens and gets just built up by, you know, inertia, if you will. And yeah, you could get lucky having it build up in the right way with inertia, but usually that's not the case. Right. It, it's it's usually not. I mean, sometimes, I mean, all the case studies, you know, we read, we read about it when it's at the end, like the Zappos and the Starbucks. And it's like, oh, that's nice. But Proofpoint doesn't have that budget and Nimbus doesn't have that budget. So where does that, you know, where does that lead me? And and some of it's in going back to some of the the basics, right? Just again, with pipeline in the US, the, the, the work groups that have the highest turnover are sales and marketing. Who touches the funnel the most? Sales and marketing. If you have a strong culture and then a strong employer brand, so you've got that higher retention, you're protecting your pipeline, right? You can churn pipeline by a customer not renewing. You can churn the hell out of pipeline by not having the same people working on the funnel and working on the pipeline. So there's a real connection there. And then there's a real connection on the productivity side. You know, when you're hiring a salesperson, you're also hiring their network, right? And if you're churning or if they don't feel like this is the place for them, they're not going to open up that network, right? I know you, you guys write a lot about referrals and referral business, that referral, i.e. the salesperson going back to someone that they've sold to before, is not going to happen if they don't see themselves staying there or they don't have confidence in the company. So that's another kind of pipeline connection, too. That's fascinating. As you were talking, that's exactly where my mind was going is, you know, is that one of the reasons why people or a lot of companies don't sort of focus on referrals as much as they should and don't realize that they're scalable because they can't. Because if you, like you said, if you have your people churning after a year, year and a half, then that definitely puts a damper on, but makes a kind of brings a ceiling to what you can do. Yeah, it, it does. I mean, if you think about culture as being a proxy for scalability or, you know, being here, right? Abilities to succeed. There's so many audiences that impacts, right? If, if the investors can't see the, the end game because of, you know, because of cultural issues, right? And we talk about culture issues. What do we mean? High turnover, low engagement, i.e. low productivity. Basically you're missing your numbers, right? When a company misses their numbers, they're missing their culture. And when they're missing their culture and missing their numbers, they're going to miss on the investor side. They're going to definitely miss on the referral side. They're going to miss on hiring, all of the things. So it, I know we're kind of making this a large thing, but 
but it is because, you know, until the robots are running things, we still have humans doing work uh, and you need humans to use chat GPT. So we have to keep the humans engaged and, and kind of forward focused and, and culture is, is a part of that. Well, so let's talk about that. I mean, we, we mentioned the word engagement several times. And again, it's another one of these words that I think gets thrown aloud a lot, you know, like, you know, an engaged culture is the, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's engagement's good. How do you, uh, two, two things I want to get into is one, what, uh, how do you create a culture of engagement? So let's start there. Like what, what is, what are some things that have to be part of that? Like what, what does that initiative look like? Yeah. It's another one that's like soft and fluffy, like engagement, like they, you have the virtual happy hours or you do that. I'm not talking about the social schedule, right? Like I think those are important, but that's not what I mean by engagement. How I define engagement is, you know, as a brand, we have awareness and resonance. Are people aware of your brand and are they aware of your brand for the right things? Is it resonant? And the number one audience for that is internal. And the super number one audience of that is your sales and your marketing teams, right? So when I mean engagement, it's it's more, I would say, are they conversant, right? You talk about the pitch, you talk about the messaging and positioning. If they don't get it, i.e. engagement, because engagement is getting it, because if you don't get it, you're not going to stay there. If you get it and you believe it and you can repeat it, you are engaged. That's why you need engagement. It is not about the giveaways and the, you know, all that stuff is fine. But engagement is not a survey. You see it in people's actions. Do they get it? Do they understand it? Do they, can they repeat it? And if you're mandating productivity, you don't got it, right? Number one thing for highly engaged people is not that they're happy or, you know, whatever they wear the t-shirt. It's that they do the work without being asked. It's that they see the vision and it makes productivity a good thing, not a bad thing, right? It's not enforced, it's inspired. And that's the engagement that you're looking for. So how you do that is actually less of the fluffy stuff and more of the is your vision accessible to everyone in the company? Is it communicated? Are you living it, working it, breathing it as a leadership team? Right. It goes back to some of those pieces as opposed to the fun stuff. Right. People have to get it on an intellectual level. They have to understand it. So are you communicating that out? Even a bad vision, well communicated and well understood is better than a great vision that's not, right? Like as marketers, it's the analogy is like, oh, you're interviewing for a job. We've got the best product ever. It's just nobody knows about it. Red flag, don't take that job. Uh, you know, it's just the same thing. It's like, we've got the best vision. It's just, just nobody gets it yet. That's not them, that's you. Your communication is off, right? So it's really a communication strategy um, than any kind of HR type activity. Yeah. Do they get it? Do they believe it? Can they repeat it? Like that's, that's the simple thing. And I, I, I love that because it's something that 
we internally spent a ton of time on and, you know, some of the things that uh, we look for as qualitative measurements of this is through our recruiting process, does that on its own build raving fans, which for us it does. Like we have people that didn't get the job, that follow us, that continue to want to work for us, that want to refer us business, that want to work with us wherever they do land, et cetera. To me, and a big part of that is that's not just because we have a great, what people generally would call as culture, right? Internal, you know, whatever. And we, you know, we are people first, all that fun stuff, but it's because they believe in how we talk about marketing, how we think about marketing, which means they're going to want to work with us somewhere else, even if they don't get the job here. Um, I think that's an interesting, I don't know if you, I don't know if you've seen that. I'm curious from, uh, you know, any of the research that you've done around this. Yeah. Well, I took some notes, uh, since we, so yes, I do have some research on it. So a couple interesting things, um, talking about kind of the, the recruiting and, and those types of things. So LinkedIn did a study that 75% of job seekers consider an employer's brand before even applying. Right. So from a cultural standpoint, what keeps me up at night is not so much the conversations I'm having. Right. If you're talking about hiring, but what are, who are the conversations I'm not I'm not talking to? Who are the people I'm not talking to? Because they're not in the funnel at all. Right. Because of because of what they've sort of gleaned. The other thing that's interesting, especially as we get into this economic environment, because it's super easy to get a little a little sassy as employers, right? Because it's a tight market. But remember, and this was a, this was recent, this was two months ago from Glassdoor, 69% of job seekers would not take a job with a company that had a bad reputation, even if they were unemployed, right? So then kind of going a long way around back to pipeline, you think about the due diligence process. I don't have data to support this, but I could imagine that in the due diligence process, and, I, and I've, I've seen this, that the same thing happens. They're looking at that too, right? Is that, are those people going to be with my account? Not talking about sales anymore, talking about the backend teams. Are they going to still be with my account in XYZ contract time? So when we talk about pipeline, that's a big, big piece of it, right? So you've got the, the hiring and the retention, because what usually drives a pipeline goal up? missing your cash plan. What's one of the ways you miss your cash plan? You overrun on regrettable and sometimes unregrettable attrition, right? So that helps you or hurts you, right? You miss your cash plan. So your pipeline goes up and then you've got more churn and just, it just creates this thing. So we would say impacts pipeline, it can boost it. It can also put a lot of pressure on it if you don't kind of watch these things. Yeah, and I can totally see, you know, you know, any enterprise level deal or anything that's a long-term engagement. Like if I'm, whatever, I'm trying to think of some of our clients, like let's assume I'm a med, med device manufacturer and I'm hiring a, you know, an external engineering firm to do some product development for me. It's a two-year project. You, you bet I'm going to go to Glassdoor and see, okay, are these, do these people stick around? Because I can't afford to miss my deadlines because then there's no way this thing's ever coming to market. If it comes to market, it's going to be too late. Right. Exactly right. But I mean, even if you're selling, I mean, even if you're selling t-shirts, right, take it out of enterprise. Uh, there was a Gallup poll that was done um, a couple months ago that 
um, folks that work for, so non-leadership level folks that work for companies, if they are, if they understand and believe in the employer brand, they're 21% more productive. So you've also got the output piece, right? So whether they're in customer service, whether they're making the t-shirt or whatever it is. So from the, you know, all levels of the organization, productivity, protecting churn, being able to have the brand out in the market. So awareness and resonance, all of those things come back to culture. And so um, I, you know, hopefully that's, that's some data, some good points that folks can, can take back. Cause I think we got to try a new route, right? We got to, we got to try a new route when it comes to kind of selling this uh, type of strategy internally. And, and hopefully this is a route folks can take. hundred percent. One thing I want to go back to that you mentioned is the word vision. So, you know, you mentioned even having a bad vision that's clearly communicated is better than a great vision that nobody understands and can follow. Who do you, in your mind, who does this well? Like, can you tell a story or give an example of where you see this play out that's really effective? Mm, yes, uh, I can. And when I'm saying vision, I don't, I do not mean vision statement, and I do not mean the business school exercise of get your vision statement on an index card and everyone can repeat it. I'm not, I'm not talking about the rote memorization. I'm just saying when I say get it, I mean like get it in Allison's way get it in Mike's way. So just want to caveat that. I'm not a proponent. Thank you for defining that because that, that, that is that is really important. <laughs> it, it is. And there's nothing wrong with having a pithy vision and there's nothing wrong with having people be able to say it. Like that's totally cool, but we've got to go beyond that. So I think there's, there's probably two examples I would give um, of, of a company that does this well. Are you familiar with, um, with Moz out of Seattle? Um, so... They're, they're an interesting one because they don't actually really have a vision statement. But when you look at their employees, whether it's out on social media or kind of in official communications, there is a very clear vision there, right? Everyone is saying the same thing in, in very different ways. But I mean, that's a small company, like very small company, really good revenue, number two or three in their category by market watch. So we're not just talking about like some tech company with some growth, like over time has really built it. And so I think they do it well because their vision is really more in their actions and the very different way um, that they go to business. Another one from is from the UK. It's called Impossible Drinks. I haven't heard so, that one. But... Yeah. <laughs> I wanted to, I was going to like, I was like, oh, I'll go with Zappos. No, I'm not going to go with the Zappos example. I love Zappos, but we got it. Um, so check out Impossible Drinks. Uh, their vision, so it's it's obviously it's drinks and smoothies and, and juices, which is a fairly saturated market. Um, but their vision is really to kind of lean into the fun part of juices and smoothies. Like you remember when they first came out, it was like, oh, that's fun. You know, it's crazy and there were crazy flavors and you didn't put protein powder in everything. And it wasn't about macro, right? It was just like, oh, smoothies fun. So they're going back into that. Their headquarters is nuts. It's called like the fruit tower. Don't, totally Google this. It is wacky, but everyone that works there, like 
gets it, can repeat it. Like it's very, very clear what their vision is, even though their vision statement isn't, you know, all that compelling, but it's definitely well communicated in terms of what they're really trying to do. So I love them. Yeah. I think the important part that you said there is actions because going back to what you said earlier, they got to get it, they got to believe it and they have to be able to repeat it. I think there are plenty of times where, you know, you do the whole put the vision statement on an index card, everybody can repeat it. There's a lot of people that can repeat it, but do they get it and do they believe it? And they can't neither get it nor believe it without the actions, without purposeful action from leadership and, you know, really everybody on down from there. Yeah, no, absolutely. And again, going back to impossible drinks, if you don't believe it, you would never want to work in the fruit tower. I mean, it, you, you, you just can't get away from it. Right. And so, um, yeah, I, I agree with you. It's vision is not a leadership exercise. Um, it, that may be how you kind of write it down, but if it stops there, if it stays there, that's, that's not, not a good situation. Yeah. I think it, I mean, at least I feel like it starts there for sure. Like someone has got to come down, but then, the, yeah, but then it has to be disseminated in a way where people, everybody can take action on it and feel like they're contributing and all that. Yeah. Yeah. Cause you put a lot of pressure on yourself as a, as a leadership team. If your vision is, you know, ABC wants to be the, you know, the, the number one, whatever, or change the world. Like those are great, but what it puts pressure on culturally is that you have to make sure that every single person in the organization has the resources, has the autonomy, has all of these things. So I actually am a proponent and visions are living things, right? It's vision um, is try to maybe start a little bit smaller, right? Because if they have to believe it, then it has to be believable for the job they do. So for the person selling t-shirts, how can they believe that your company wants to solve world hunger Right. Like maybe that's the case. Maybe you can make that happen, but that's sort of how you have to think about it. So I actually kind of take an opposite approach of what is kind of that attainable vision that everyone can believe, everyone can repeat, everyone can get, get some success with it and then keep going from there, which is kind of in the face of all the business. It's like, no, your vision should be aspirational. Sure. Everything's aspirational in the business climate, right? There are, there's <laughs> no guarantees. So Waking up and coming to work is an aspiration. So I, I kind of challenge, I mean, it was for me this morning. So I challenged that a little bit. It's like, why would you always like put the goalpost so far that nobody can get it like that? What? That's not fun. So get it. Then you can kind of, you know, keep moving it forward, keep moving it forward. Uh, Ma's again, a good example of that, right? They have definitely changed over the years in terms of what their vision is. So. Yeah, I, I think if you I think you're right, I think if we look at the companies out there, large or small, that have had longevity through the decades, I think we'll all see that where you can see that their vision statements actually do change and they evolve. They do. Yeah. Right. And, and in this climate, just, I don't think it's by yeah, no, no, definitely not. And in, in this climate, right, as we're kind of like 
less on the hyper growth, more on the safety and soundness and all of that, which is, you know, totally, it's fine. It's a business cycle. When we talk in nine months, we'll be talking about growth again. Um, but you're right. It, it changes over time because it is a building block of the company. It's part of the strategy, right? It's not just an output from an offsite. Um, it's part of it, which then plays into culture, which then plays into employer brand and all of the kind of the things that we've talked about. So. So one more thing I want to go back to is, you know, you, you mentioned turnover being a killer for pipeline, which makes complete sense. And you specifically mentioned, you know, where do we see the highest turnover? Sales and marketing. Okay. One of the things I come back to there is if we, I don't know this for a fact, I probably should have looked it up before we talked, but if I had to guess the two specific positions with the highest turnover are VP of sales and CMO in terms of the shortest tenure. Nope. You're actually, Especially you are correct. You are correct. That is correct. Yes. So let's talk more about that. I guess first question would be why do you either through your research, why do you believe it happens or just even the hunch? Why do you think the, that's where we see the most turnover? So on the CMO side of things, I think it's, <laughs> we could probably have like three sessions on this, but here's <laughs> what I will say. Uh, there, there is a, there was an interesting article, this was probably about a year ago, but basically that looked at the tenure of CMOs and the desire of the teams to rebrand. And that is because CMOs are seen as the ones with the crayons, right? That, that, you know, it, Brand is your logo and your color. And when you're ready to change that, you've got to change him or her out. So that's a failure on both sides of not having marketing and brand at the strategy table. So it's a failure on the CMO's part for only showing up with pictures and not making the business case for brand. And it's also on the rest of the leadership team for not understanding. So it's a culpability on both sides. But it's because the CMO is too tied to brand and not to business outcomes, right? And what because I learned from our initial conversation was that you literally mentioned brand is the business case. Brand is the business case. It, I mean, it is like what I I know I'm biased, but I don't understand what else it could be. Brand is the business case. That is what you're doing, um, and so it encompasses every function within the company. So as CMOs. We have to be responsible for how we show up. We have to be conversant. We have to be able to speak to a CFO outside of just our budget. We have to understand these things. We have to participate in business conversations and discussions and be at the strategy table, not be the one that the plan is handed to. And then we start talking about MQLs and SQLs and whatever the hell, that kind of stuff. So that's really, really important. So CMO, 2.3 years is usually the rebranding life. And that, again, is on us for, for making sure we're educating our colleagues and also hitting the table sometimes. On the VP of sales, this is not research-based. This is my pure experience and opinion, but I've been doing this a long time and I started in sales, is when you miss your sales number, you got to hold somebody accountable, but you don't want to get your chief revenue officer out because he or she is also usually responsible for a lot of non-revenue functions. So that you can't do. So you go the next person down and it's usually the VP of sales, which in a lot of organizations is, is the account executive. 
right? It's, it's sometimes not like a department head, it's an account executive. Um, and that's accountability, right? That's accountability. That's not necessarily a bad thing. Um, but I also would argue there's other ways to kind of demonstrate and show accountability besides that, right? Because we give ourselves a lot of grace as leaders for down cycles and up cycles, but we don't necessarily do that when it comes to the pipeline. We tend to just forget what the world is doing when it comes to pipeline because we don't want to make excuses. And I get that. Um, but everything operates in context. And so what you really want to do is look at how well is your sales team taking responsibility for reality, not arguing with reality. Sales are down. Okay. You have to now outbound, you know, those types of things. So how well are they reading that? Um, I think is important. And I think if you approach it that way, you may not have as much turnover, right? Because again, it goes back to engagement. If they're engaged, they're going to realize we're in a down economy right now. And being on the road is great, but it's a lot of first level conversations. So how do they get more productive? How do they do these things? If they agree with the vision, they'll do those things and, and hopefully stay in the seat for a full sales cycle or two. <laughs> yep. Um, you know, one of the, um, one of the things I really want to ask you is what do you see as the interaction interplay between brand and culture? So talking to you, I would say that they're really synonymous, that it's actually one is maybe a misnomer for the other. We tend to think of culture as internal brand and brand as external, but they're actually the same thing. I think it's all brand. Um, so I think that that's, that's different. Uh, if I was talking to other people besides you and all of your podcast listeners, again, going back to my internal audience, right? If I was sort of pitching a new initiative or trying to pitch for money for brand, money for culture. First of all, I would say always go for brand. <laughs> Don't pitch for money for culture. I can't help you. If you do that, it's just not going to end well. Um, I would say that in all seriousness, that, that culture is actually an output of brand in many cases. Um, and so by doing the hard work of establishing the brand, even if you don't care about culture as a person, of course, no one says that, but even if you don't care about culture, everyone cares about brand because again, what does it say about you if you work for a brand that, you know, no one cares about. So, um, culture is an output of brand. I was hoping you'd say that. So I, I love that. Good. I, well, I, we didn't practice this beforehand, <laughs> so I'm really glad that I did. But um, but it, it is. It's it's an output, and you know, if you kind of think of, um, I come from a family of engineers, so I tend to think of things in like value equations. So, you know, you've got brand to culture to employer brand, right? And and so it's kind of like these kind of this continuous output right? And all of those outputs impact pipelines. So you want to start at the very beginning of the value equation and follow it all the way down. I keep, I keep wanting to get into a little bit more tactical uh, skill set conversation here, but you keep giving me 
tangents to go on. So I'm going to go on one more here. Not, not really a tangent per se, but you know, you mentioned brand culture, employer brand. Um, a belief that I have, at least, and I'm curious on your thoughts here, is the companies do themselves a disservice by separating their brand from their employer brand. And they kind of create them almost in silos and they give them separate taglines. I know the taglines are obviously, you know, whatever we'll call them, uh, you know, marketing stuff, but they're still there. And to me, that's a big miss because you're missing the opportunity for in your recruitment cycle to really educate on what is your core brand? What is your core vision and mission all about? And then you bring somebody in because of what we typically see as quote unquote culture. But when they come here, they don't get it and they don't believe it, at least not right away. So what, what, what do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I absolutely agree. I think if something is good enough for a client, it's good enough for an employee. If it's good enough for an employee, it's good enough for a client. But that puts some pressure on us as marketers because that puts an end to the, this is the internal only version of the deck <laughs> you know, or the, you know, that kind of thing, or this is just the Google Doc. So yeah, you got to kind of keep everything you know, pristine. Um, I, I agree that they shouldn't be separated um, because to your point about the interviewing process, you know, everyone talks about the 90 day productivity cycle or the whatever, man, if in that interview cycle, you can get someone up to speed on not just like the mission, mission, vision, value statement, but really get them into the vision so that that two to three to four week period that's what they're thinking about. They're starting to think of ideas and they can hit the ground, maybe not with all their logins, but they've got it up here. That is fantastic. When I was talking about kind of brand to culture to employer brand, that's sort of a series of outputs. So that's sort of going back to that business case piece, right? Brand is the thing, right? It's the cloud and the everything kind of drops out of, of that. So that's to sort of build understanding for non-marketers of what are all of the outcomes or outputs of brand, right? And again, speaking their language, like people get employer brand, your HR professional is going to use that language. So pipeline is an output of brand, employer brand is an out, you know, culture, all of those sort of things are outputs of brand, but you're right. It, it shouldn't be separate in the way you think about it. Um, but sometimes there's separate outputs, right? Like a glass door rating or whatever. There's some separate outputs, but it's the same, same set of actions. So let's, let's get into some slightly more tactical things here. Um, from a skill set perspective, if you are a leader, and I'm not going to define whether that's a CEO, a CMO, what a founder, whatever. If you're a leader and you are working on building brand and culture, because I totally agree with you that they're really synonymous in my mind. You can't really have one or the other. It's a chicken and egg problem for me. Um, what are the most critical skill sets you need to, you should have? Hmm. I think the first one is empathy, right? 
And again, this goes beyond as leaders, we'll take a call in the call center once a quarter or <laughs> talk to me like, this is real good things. I do those things. There's nothing wrong with that. Um, but going back to sort of the, you can be empathetic to people, but you can also be empathetic to context, right? So being a student of the game, understanding what's going on in the broader context in the world, in your company, in your department. So really kind of being empathetic. Um, and there's ways to do that right in your conversation. Something that, that our CEO, uh, Jeffrey Kendall does a lot is tell me more about that, right? Whether he's talking to a client, whether he's talking to the leadership team, he just has an innate curiosity, the output of which is he's a very, very empathetic leader. Now, He's not always like, yeah, sure, do whatever. He's not like that at all, but he's very empathetic and therefore he's very fair. And people don't talk about fairness a lot when they talk about brand and culture. But boy, I can tell you, you can have all the parties, all the perks, but if, if, if there's not fairness in the decision-making, if there's not like a clear-eyedness and it's just like here, that's trouble. Right. And that's actually where culture sometimes can overstep is because cultures can be so immersive. You know, you've got the tattoo. You're just you can't see the broader market that you operate in or the fact that I work at Nimbus, but I also do a couple other things like mom and, duh and this and that. And that. Everyone's a multi hyphenate. So that's empathy, too. So I think the, the probably the number one thing is empathy. And I think the number two, again, this may may or may not be what you were wanting me to go down, is persistence because, man, it drives me nuts. People will let a sales cycle that has sign of life go on forever, right? <laughs> they will let financial analysis go on forever. But when it comes to anything having to do with brand or culture, it's like, what was the, did the campaign work? Did it not work? It's like, whoa, man, like it's been two weeks, you know? So persistence, you have to consistently, persistently make and push the business case for brand, just like everyone does with sales, with finance, with HR, it is right up there. Um, and so you have to be persistent. You cannot give up and, and have yourself relegated, delegated to a campaign. So let's, uh, what does that look like from the CEO's perspective? And what does that look like from the CMO's perspective? Because like we talked about before, both are at fault for what we see today in, uh, I think in the business world. Sure. So from a, a CMO or, you know, anyone's perspective, I would say from a CMO specifically, don't dread the board meeting, be annoying, get on the agenda, get on the agenda every single time if you can be in the board meeting somehow, even if it's just to observe, right? Because going back to empathy, you're not going to get the full context if you get it from a person from a person at the next meeting, right? And then on the persistence, we're pushing this water uphill, right? Some of our colleagues, the water dumps on their heads, right? We're pushing it uphill, <laughs> all the time. And so, and that, that's fine, right? That's part of the fun of it. So that's where the persistence comes in. So as far as like specific tactics, always, always try to be in the board meeting. Always, 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 always be involved in the pre-sales cycle. 
not the hand-waving once the contract is signed, but at the pre-sales process, right? Even if your product has nothing to do with marketing or you think it doesn't have anything to do with marketing, always, always be there because that's how you're going to hold yourself accountable, right? If the stuff your team puts together in a conference room sounds ridiculous in person, you need to be there for that awkwardness, right? You need to see that. Um, and in best cases, you need to be the one saying it and being like, wow, that was awkward, right? So there's there's an accountability piece there. So that's what it looks like, I think, from, from a CMO perspective is push, not defend, but push, always push. From a CEO standpoint, I'm really fortunate. I work for Jeffrey for seven years now. He is a sales and marketing focused CEO. So I'd say first and foremost, if any of this conversation and you're like, yeah, hell yeah, make sure you're working for a sales and marketing CEO and not a product CEO. I'm not trying to be rude. It's just, it's just not going to be a match, right? So that's just kind of calling it like I see it. Um, and then also from a CEO perspective is just being at least 1% open to the business case. We listen to pitches from partners, investors all the time. Listen to the pitch from marketing right? With the same kind of eyes and ears and just be at least 1% open to it. I could totally um, support the, the first part of it. I mean, all, everything you just said, but the, the first part, because being in a, the CEO of a small organization, I get to do a lot of these things. And yeah, I can tell you that I've been responsible for putting together new messaging and then being on a sales call and going, wow, that was that, awful. Yeah. That's not <laughs> <Yeah>. going to work. <laughs> Let's try this again. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And that's, I think that's great, right? I mean, so, um, but yeah, I think being being involved in that is, is is super, super important. It's it's humbling, but it's also, I think, I think it makes things go faster too. I, I do. And, and also I would just say, you know, kind of from a brand standpoint, you take, you know, like, like proof point, right? You all have a vibe, you have an energy, you're doing cool things, you've got amazing content. It's a miss, no matter what your business is, to think that one of the reasons why you got that call or that meeting wasn't because of how you do the marketing. They want whatever some of that is, right? FOMO is a real thing. And so being able to meet the marketer or the leader that kind of was responsible for doing the thing that made them call, even if they're buying a widget, is a really, really good sales tactic, Right. Because like you're the cool person and everyone wants to be cooler, whether it's widgets, t-shirts, enterprise sales, everyone wants to be a little cool and different. We have that distinct privilege of being able to kind of be a little bit apart from the machine. It's a great sales tactic. Yeah, I, I totally agree. And I mean, obviously we're, we're in a say slightly more for, fortunate situation. Maybe you could say that because we're selling to marketers, but I mean, I can't count the number of times I've been in a call and like, Hey, you know that thing that you did? What tool are you using? Or how did you, you know, how did that work? Or all this kind of stuff where it was totally unrelated to what we're actually here to talk about. But, you know, and it gives them that opportunity to, to ask that kind of question. Not that they couldn't ask it to our director of growth. I mean, he's involved with a lot of the same stuff. But, but it's talking to the source and again, kind of going back to that empathy and that persistence. I mean, the whole reason you and I got to know each other was because you sent me a pack of playing cards. Right. So, yeah, whether you're selling to marketers or someone else, just, you know, building in public like you guys talk about, that's a huge, huge part of brand. Right. So going back to tactics, maybe one of the other tactics people can think about is build in public. 
right? Build in public. There's no better way to build and get feedback on your brand, on your culture, on your products than to build in public. Um, and that's, you know, that's transparent. hundred percent. I mean, we're, if anybody needs an example of that, I mean, just look at what's going on in the AI space right now. I mean, the companies are building in public. They're the ones that are, at least as of right now, ahead of the curve, at least in terms of uh, share a voice. Let's put it that way. Yeah, no, exactly. Exactly. And I think that's, I think that's great. I think that's a great example of vision, right? Vision can be, your vision could be, hey, we're going to build in public. That's our vision. And people can get it, they can believe it, and they can repeat that. So, yep. So, let's talk really briefly about tool sets. So, we talked about mindsets, talked about skill sets. What are the tools that, again, somebody needs to be able to execute? brand and culture. I'm going to start lumping those two together just because of this conversation, what we mentioned earlier. So when I, when I say tool sets, uh, I'm not talking about like software platform, although if there is one great, let's talk about it, but I'm talking more broadly in terms of, is there a particular process that you've seen work? Is there, um, you know, a, a particular, um, uh, team structure that works for this, you know, any, anything that's more like really, really tactical. Um, so super tactically, if folks don't already subscribe to the Cantar K A N T A R brand Z report, um, absolutely would do that. It's free. Uh, you will get some sales spam, but you know, whatever, but it is absolutely free that takes the brand value. I'm not talking about the, you know, the market cap, but the brand value, you know, by region, by, you know, different industries. It's a great, great place to take a look and then really work backwards, right, on what some of those companies are doing, especially outside of your industry. So that that's one. Um, the other piece is, you know, if you think about what are the last one or two things at your company that worked, why did they work? How did they work? What kind of team did they have? Right? Because I don't know everyone's business that's talking or that's listening, but if there's something that has worked, right? Something got pushed through that you're like, what? Like, we're, oh, we're doing that. Okay. How did that happen? <laughs> Replicate that as long as it's ethical. Like, f because that's, that's the lane, right? Someone has opened that lane for you. Just go through that lane. Do not create it yourself. Go through what's already working. It's that's easier to do. So that is one of the the tools to use. Is what are some things that have kind of worked before? Then on the brand and culture side, again, remembering that it's a business case. Tactically, you need to set a cadence. If you have a corporate calendar, great. If you don't have a corporate calendar, use your Google Calendar. Set cadence to revisit vision, to revisit some of the pieces on the employer brand, whatever the things are that are sort of your ingredients, build the discipline, set the reminders to revisit those in an objective and a subjective way. And that's probably the third tool is there is quantitative and qualitative to all of this. You need to have both components in every piece. So if you're looking at employee engagement, if you're looking at retention, like, great, we retained 100% of our employees, but everyone hates each other like that. 
Okay, you know, so you have to have quantitative and qualitative. That goes back to the business case piece of it. But it also, you know, some are leading indicators and some are lagging indicators. So if you do both of those, quantitative and qualitative, and you revisit it on a consistent basis, just like you would anything important in your company, you'll start to make a lot of progress. So I'm, I'm curious, you, know, you mentioned you don't love KPIs and it's not no. all about the dashboard, but what does your dashboard look like? By dashboard. For when it, uh, when it comes to when it comes to this, am I gonna have to pull this up? Uh, you know <laughs> my dashboard. So we, um, yeah, we do have a dashboard when it comes to to culture. So we have a we have a head of of people and culture, which I am not that person, so you can probably tell. Um, but we look at a lot of the things that you know that we talked about, right? So things like regrettable atten- uh, regrettable attrition, time to hire you know, uh, if it's regrettable attrition, kind of the key reasons, a lot of, of what other people um, think about. But I also keep a secret category in my, uh, in my scorecard on brand, and this is specific for awareness and resonance, is I keep a folder, super low key, on just things that happen out in the market. Like I walk up to someone at some conference and they're like, man, you know, Nimbus is great. You know, I didn't hear about you guys two years ago, whatever. I send myself an email with that interaction. My whole team does that as does the sales team, right? We see things out there and I'm sure there's technology that can measure this or a robot you could send after it. But to me, it's just sort of like, what is the vibe out there? Again, being empathetic to the context. Like I can look at all the numbers I pull and I'm like, I look great, but that doesn't really matter. Right. So like what's really kind of going on. So other things like you could look at it, you know, how many earned placements and those things, but like, are you getting asked to speak at places? Are you not like, are you getting real award, you know, inquiries, not the, Hey, congratulations. I've never talked to you. You won CMO of the year, not those, but like the real ones. Just that kind of mix, right? And and when I'm presenting on our scorecard, I give kind of like, hey, look, I think we're at about a seven of 10. We've got data that shows we're a little bit north or a little bit south, but my feel, and that's again, going back to credibility of the CMO, you've got to be able to, you know, salespeople call it call the ball, right? You've got to be able to call the ball in your own business and have a mix of quantitative and qualitative and always include that when you're presenting right? Because you want to be the go-to person for a read on your business. You do not want other people assessing where you are with your business based on MQLs or whatever, right? Because then we justify it and we defend it. And then it's like, well, everything marketing says is BS because you've got a reason for why the leads aren't there. It's like lead with your call the ball, we're at a seven of 10 or whatever, and then explain it. I love that. And I think that's also from a, like a consult consulting firm or an agency perspective, I like think that's also really, really critical. Yeah, exactly. I mean, you see it all the time where, you know, look, I've, I've been in that boat in the past, you know, where you just, you're on the defensive. Yeah. And it's usually because you haven't done your own homework. Right. Yeah. It's usually because you haven't done your homework and or you're seen as the student, not the teacher. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I don't mean that in an egotistical way, like we can all learn things, but if you are a subject matter expert and I've got to hope that you are, <laughs> if, if you're listening and if you're a CMO or anyone else in marketing, there are ways to demonstrate that consistently and elegantly without looking like a jerk. 
take those opportunities because what you'll find is you'll get into more dialogue and less defensiveness. There'll be more curiosity from your colleagues than calling out. And that is when you're like, okay, now that I don't have to talk about why we got 67 leads from this conference instead of 95, because that was what was in the spreadsheet. I can start talking about the real stuff, which is the brand stuff, the culture stuff. And then of course the tactics have to work. I'm not discounting that, but that's really where you want your time to be spent discussing with your colleagues. So we've, we've talked about pretty much everything. So awesome. much. We've covered everything. <laughs> yeah, I'm sure we could, we could easily go on for, I mean, I've got notes here for a whole bunch of other things. I'd love to be able to ask you, but I know your time is valuable. So you've got plenty of other things to do. Let's talk more specifically around results. I mean, you, you told one story, Ramaz, whether it's at Nimbus or anybody else that you know of or through the research that you've done, um, what are some of the results of doing this right, of really focusing on culture? And again, specifically, we're talking about culture impacting pipeline. Yes, culture impacting pipeline. Um, I, I mean, you absolutely can use, you know, Nimbus as an example. I mean, it, it may be a little bit self-serving, but it's it's a build in public uh, type situation where, you know, we brought a new leadership team in three years ago expressly to pivot the company um, to, you know, to a different go to market and a different culture because that was that was a challenge. And there were reasons for that. Um, but it was a challenge walking in. So when we're talking about one to one and a half stars on Glassdoor, you know, kind of some other stuff, again, reasons for it. Um, but one of the very first things that, uh, that Jeffrey Kendall, our CEO did, we did three things immediately. One is he made every single person a shareholder, right? Which is, is pretty unusual for a company our size. We had about a hundred and so people at the time, we have about 400 now. So that again, that sort of believe it, type piece. It's like, no, you're important. Oh, really? Yes, you are important. You are a shareholder um, in the company. So that was first. The second is normally when you're filling out your leadership team, you're going to do the glitzy, the glitzy hires first. One of the first hires he made was our chief uh, people and culture officer, right? Um, which is again, unusual. That's usually the, per you add that person and then you add the marketing person, you know, when you've scaled. Um, but so, so that was the, the second thing. And so I think that was done um, extremely well. And then third, we, you know, we celebrate, we suffer in public, right? We've had our knocks, we've had layoffs, we've had other things, but it all happens in the public domain. We don't, you know, curate what's out there um, from, from employees or even from ourselves. You can see by some of our strange social posts that happen sometimes, we're just, we just put it out there. Um, and it's worked because the type of solution that we do, so we're in banking and financial services, and we focus on, you know, serving markets that are not served very well today and, uh, kind of in a nutshell. And so that openness that everyone having equal value that focus corporately on people and culture is really part of the solution and the product that we sell. Right. And so I think that that's, that's a good example of it working well. And, you know, we've grown, you know, the hundred or so to over 400, we're a private companies. So 
can't disclose sales numbers, but you'll just have to trust me. We're in a very different sales place um, than we were uh, a couple years ago. And probably most importantly, it's been fun, right? And um, I think that that's, that's been key because uh, this is a tough industry, financial services, tough industry. Everyone can read the news. Um, but to have an organization that's still together and still still rowing um, in this climate is, uh, is, I think, a feat in and of itself. Um, I think another one just to kind of throw out there, and I think you're familiar too, is, um, is actually over at Autobooks and what Derek Sutton has done with his team. Um, so if you're not familiar with Autobooks, you can, you can Google it, um, Small Business um, Banking Solutions. But they are completely aligned around this jobs to be done culture, like so into it, like even in their regular, not at work, having a drink language, they're talking about jobs to be done. I mean, everybody at the whole company. So, I mean, to completely know it, believe it, repeat it uh, in terms of the, the vision. And I mean, they've had steady growth. You can set your watch by auto books and, um, and people love to work there and people love to work with them, uh, which I think is important. And it's because every single conversation is about jobs to be done. Love that. So I just, as you were talking, I, I just pulled up your Nimbus's Glassdoor reviews in case anyone's questioning what you're oh, talking God, about. Oh God, I probably should have checked. <laughs> no, you, okay, well, I was like, I checked it last week. Four, four and a half stars, which is pretty good. 87% uh, recommend to a friend, 90% approve of the CEO. So that says it all. I mean, not about all, but a lot. It says a lot. Yes, it <laughs> says a lot. No, um, but yeah, and that's, you know, uh, that's about kind of doing everything, you know, out in, out in public. And I think um, how you address Glassdoor, you know, reviews that maybe aren't sterling and things like that is also just kind of going back to tactics. I mean, that is as important as a client calling and, and complaining about a product. That is a client calling in and complaining about a product. Like your it brand, be a client later yeah. Well, it could be a client, <laughs> yeah, or not. But but your your culture, your brand is your product, and so that is a client complaining about a product. They need a call. They need to be addressed, and um, you know, same way you would if if it was a, a paying client. Awesome. Well, Allison, this is again. I can keep talking to you for easily another hour or two about all sorts of things, but I know we're. We're already a little bit over time. Okay, no um, problem. Do you have a couple more minutes available for our uh, lightning round, or do you got to run? All right. We'll do the lightning round really, really briefly. I'll skip over a couple questions, keep it quick for you. Um, all right. What is the main KPI used to evaluate marketing success? Vibe. Vibe. Love it. Uh, never actually hear the first person that's ever said it, but based on uh. our conversation... I totally get it. Yeah, it it's makes sense. Uh, what is your favorite uh, sales or marketing book? Think like a brand out of bank. <laughs> Love it. Anybody wondering? That's Al that's Allison's book. Uh, yes, I know. <laughs> another one I would throw in there would be a book called Subtract by Lydie Klotz. Uh, it's the art of subtraction in an ad everything world. I love that. Actually, I'm not going to make this a lightning round because I'm going to keep responding here to your answers here. But again, it's the first time I've heard that one. And I, I love it. That's one of the things internally that we've 
tried to focus on is, okay, what can we take away and make things better? Yes. That's a book um, for you. All right. What is your least favorite, least favorite business word or phrase? Perspective. Okay. Like when people say from a such and such perspective, you can just say, I think that's wrong. Like you don't have to keep you know, like, well, from that perspective, I'm like, no, just it's wrong. Just say it. Yep. Um, what uh, is your favorite either song or band or type of music to listen to as you're cranking on deep work? Oh, I don't listen to anything when I'm cranking on deep work. My favorite song that I listen to when I'm getting pumped up, like for this, is You Don't Own Me by Leslie Gore. Okay. Awesome. <laughs> You're I just like, huh? trying to get pumped up. Yeah, I, well, yeah, I tried to get pumped up. This is me pumped up. <laughs> awesome, awesome. All right, well, Allison, thank you so much. This, yeah. is, this has been fun. Hopefully you had a good time, too. I Tons did. Of amazingly valuable stuff. Uh, the research report, I honestly kind of blanked to mention the fact there is a formal research that you actually worked on. Um, is there an easy URL somebody can find this? Yeah. Can put it in the show uh, notes. Yeah, yeah. I would put it in the show notes and then we're going to put it um, on our website, uh, thinklikeabrandbook.com. Got it. All righty. Awesome. We'll do that. Thank you again. Appreciate yeah. it. And yeah, it was fun. Anybody else? All right. Talk we'll to see you later. next week. Thanks for joining us on another episode of the Master Marketer Show. We'll be back next week with more B2B marketing success stories. Visit our website, www.proofpoint.marketing, for the full episode library complete with show notes, guides, templates, and more. Make sure to follow Proofpoint Marketing on LinkedIn and YouTube so you never miss an episode. Listen every Wednesday wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time.